freshman year, you have a roommate from China. You'd never met anybody from China before. He gives you a Chinese name. You learn a couple Chinese words. Now flash forward a few years. Suddenly you're in Hong Kong. You're speaking Chinese, holding an umbrella and speaking Chinese. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange stories. The first day I was in Hong Kong, on my quest for food, I came across this older gentleman. Bald head, pretty old. Uh, you could definitely tell he's living in an impoverished area, probably unemployed. And then he uh, approached me and was asking me, where are you from, where are you from, in Cantonese, and I didn't understand that at all. And so I was quite flustered and... So I, you know, tell him, like, I'm from America, didn't know how to say that in Cantonese. And so we just go through this exchange where uh, he, he wants to talk to me, but I don't have any words to say. And so I'm kind of using uh, my hands, like in a game of charades, to try to explain things. Without a doubt, I was unsuccessful. <laughs> it's like, how do you explain America with your hands? He definitely insisted that I was from Africa, which I wasn't. But I think just that interaction was very bizarre and very strange. This week, learning to love lukewarm water, nailing the cyber vocabulary in Chinese, and living through the Umbrella Revolution. Join us on our journey from California to Hong Kong and learning to be a leader through organized protest. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. These exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them. They are people very much like ourselves. And that's what we call cultural exchange. Yes. My name is Kamal Thomas. I am a cyber policy researcher at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, which is a international affairs a think tank uh, out here in D.C. Um, during 2014, I did study abroad at the University of Hong Kong during my junior year at the University of California, Davis. I was through the University of California Education Abroad Program, where I was received funding through the Gilman Scholarship to participate in the one-year uh, exchange program. Starting my freshman year at UC Davis, one of my uh, one of the ten roommates I had was an international student from Southern China. It's so my first time actually meeting someone that was actually abroad, and first time meeting a Chinese person. Throughout our interactions, I was starting to become more interested in Chinese culture and some of the foods he would introduce me to, some of the words he would give me. He actually gave me the uh, my first Chinese name, which was Wang Yi. He encouraged me to start taking Chinese classes, and so I wanted to go abroad for a year. I'd never done it in my life. I decided to go to Hong Kong since it was a little easier transition from what I've understood. My roommates were all Chinese. I think I was one of two or three um, non 
uh, local students that was uh, that was in that building. And so it was definitely a huge transition, especially being the only, not only the only American, but also the only black person there. So I think I went a couple weeks before I saw another black person. So it was kind of strange at first. The first morning was brutal. One, the building I was in was extremely old, about 200 years old or so, and it was extremely humid. Uh, there was a lot of bugs and a lot of cobwebs and a lot of spiders and even lizards inside the apartment. It was extremely dusty, and I think it was around noon on the first day, and I was extremely hungry. I had no idea where to go, so I just uh, decided to go on a stroll. Um, found an ATM, withdrew some Hong Kong dollars, and then eventually walked past uh, some sign that I thought meant food in, in Mandarin, so I figured it was the, where food was, and eventually found a McDonald's. So <laughs> my first meal in Hong Kong was a Big Mac. <laughs> initially feel ostracized. They're so different. The only images of black people they've probably ever seen were on movies. And so there's a lot of presumptions and stereotypes that I had to fight on a daily basis where people would ask me ridiculous questions like, oh, can you rap for us? Or do you play basketball? Which I do. <laughs> You know, do you love fried chicken and watermelon and so many other things? It was just tough and kind of a, a struggle trying to deal with that on a regular basis. And during that same time, we had several uh, international news coverages of major shootings in the U.S. of predominantly young black men. And so I was essentially the spokesperson on all things black issues in America. It was a struggle and a little frustrating at times. I easily became homesick just because I felt like there was no one I can talk to about what was going on and how I felt about it and having to explain constantly what was going on from my perspective. Hong Kong people don't have guns, so it was a very different. A lot of the cops didn't even have guns, so um, I knew growing in Southern California was always be mindful of your interactions with the police, and you know, there's people that may uh, be carrying, and so you know, have to be cautious. Uh, there's always a concern about your safety at night, just roaming the streets could be dangerous living there. I didn't experience that at all. Several times I would go out with my friends and we would just decide to spend the night in the park. And that was kind of a very regular thing for uh, international students who were studying Hong Kong to do. So I don't think I've ever felt as safe in my life as I did living in Hong Kong. Throughout time, I definitely felt more comfortable. I mean, there was, was like two steps forward, one step back. One of the things that I found was very helpful was actually trying to learn Cantonese. Uh, just small things, ordering food, knowing how to say your address to the taxi driver, interacting with some of the students that I lived with in the dorm, playing basketball with them, going on jogs to the hilltop every single day. That definitely allowed me to build uh, a stronger tie and connections with a lot of the other students. Mm -hmm. 
remember one of my teammates on the basketball team invited me to his home and he lived in the outskirts of the more impoverished areas of Hong Kong and so took me in one of these huge skyscraper buildings probably about 15 stories high very small living quarters and so he took me there and I remember uh, I was up there and turned the corner and this lady just shrieks <laughs> uh, from things like who is this 6'2 black guy doing in my living room and I don't think he told his mom <laughs> uh, who he was bringing home but eventually we you know talked a bit with the limited Chinese that I knew and you know some of the English she knew were able to get along a lot better she taught me how to make dumplings um, make uh, rice noodles. So definitely at that moment, I felt like I was starting to get the hang of things uh, and being able to build stronger ties with some of my teammates and people living in my dorms and classmates was definitely uh, very helpful moving on. While I was living in Hong Kong, I decided to I'm um, getting to cybersecurity, which is my profession now, and uh, decided to do a whole presentation in Mandarin, which was extremely difficult. I practiced for weeks. I actually used to get a lot of anxiety speaking in Chinese generally, and it was extreme struggle for me for years and years, and even to this day. I think I didn't get over it until maybe about a year ago. And so I was in front of the class giving a presentation on a cybersecurity topic, and it went very well. I was able to respond to questions. I knew all my terms. And so I think that was one of the most proud moments and probably one of the biggest accomplishments was being able to overcome my fear of speaking a foreign language and feeling like I was <laughs> um, stupid just because I didn't know what to say and how to articulate myself. So I wish everyone could saw. I mean, next time I'll record it. <laughs> A lot of the streetwear I wear now, outside of professional clothes, is mostly Chinese influenced. A lot of the t-shirts, um, a lot of the pants, some of the other things. So I kind of mix match uh, my style based off of um, being exposed to a traditional Chinese clothing. Definitely started drinking um, lukewarm or warm water. I don't drink cold water at all. That's one thing they don't do is drink cold water. I think they believe it's bad for you, part of like Chinese medicine. And so that's one thing that I've picked up. Um, love eating with chopsticks. Always saying that American Chinese food is not Chinese food because it's not, it's a huge difference, uh, even though both do taste good. Eating a lot of, uh, putting a lot of spices on my food, eating a lot uh, more noodles. I cook noodles at home very, very often now. I think definitely my eating styles and what I eat more frequently is definitely um, influenced from living in, in Hong Kong. The Umbrella Revolution. The beginning of the school year, about mid-September, students were planning a protest against the National People's Congress uh, in regards to the selection of the uh, chief executive who was the head of the Hong Kong government. Starting in about 1997, when the UK agreed to give Hong Kong back to China, there is an agreement outlining that the government, Hong Kong government, would be relatively 
independent except for international affairs and military, and they would be able to have some sort of a democratic process. Throughout that process, uh, the Chinese government essentially agreed to gradually allow more democratic processes and institutions to take hold. And so during the 2015 elections, which was coming up soon, there was a goal to stop China from selecting three or four candidates that the people could vote on. So they wouldn't be able to have full suffrage. So students uh, decided to protest. I was simply just curious. Um, all the professors agreed to not penalize students for not showing up to class. This was something that a lot of the faculty supported and even participated in and were the organizers of. I remember distinctly, it was probably in the middle of the week where there was an oath-taking ceremony where each student's read uh, oath, pretty much agreeing to protest using civil disobedience and, and discourse and nonviolence. following day, there was a huge protest at a different campus where there's probably about two to 3,000 students that were there. And then uh, the next day, it was in front of the central government building, and it was about maybe 7,000 students. And then there was probably about 15,000 students and other people that are there on that during the weekend. While the protest was going on, there was people speaking and explaining what was going on and teaching the students about why they were protesting and everything of that nature. And it seemed very much like a cultural event. Uh, however, it was probably right after sunset, you started hearing everyone scream. I was confused. I couldn't speak the language, so I really didn't know what was going on. People were running. And then eventually I noticed that there's canisters of tear gas being thrown from the cops into the crowds. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know what to do. I knew I was on a student visa. I didn't want to get arrested. And so I immediately ran down uh, to the bottom level close to the street and ran inside a KFC and just stayed there until everything just blew down. The following day, the protest grew to 50, over 50,000 students and other protesters living in different parts of the city. And so there's about three protest locations and the protest went on for about 80 days. It was called the Umbrella Revolution because uh, on the first night where we had over 50,000 protesters and the pepper spray and the tear gas were thrown, people used umbrellas to shield themselves. <laughs> and so after that, every student decided to, all the protesters decided to bring out a, a yellow umbrella um, representing and symbolizing their uh, opposition to what was going on. I distinctly remember one of the nights where I was sleeping out on the street because uh, all the streets were blocked off and there was a counter protesters that showed up. And so I remember it was probably around 4 a.m. Uh, people were on the megaphone, couldn't really understand what was being said, but another person that was there started explaining. It was like, we think there's counter protesters here. We don't know uh, who they're with, but 
they're pretending to represent one of us and they're bashing windows or breaking things and they're trying to uh, make us look bad. And so we're trying to get to call the police to have them removed. And so that was one of the interesting aspects of it, even though there's a lot of contention between uh, the police officers and the protesters, there is still agreement on have a common decency and understanding that, you know, we should work with the police to have these people removed because they're not uh, taking part in what we're supporting. It was so much like a cultural event. I remember it was actually the anniversary of China, I think it was the 65th anniversary of the People's Republic of China. And so there's tons of people coming out in protests, We're talking about over 100,000 people in one location. Just a sea of people that were there was extremely organized. You had people handing out water bottles, people handing out food, people handing out uh, masks. There were people teaching um, English classes and math classes. I actually went out and taught a few math classes and English classes as well. There were PowerPoint presentations on basic law and the reason for the protest. There were people singing and people coloring in chalk on the street side and different art shows and gymnastics presentations that are all going on in the middle of the city. And so it was a very bizarre scene since that, you know, people were protesting, but it was actually a very positive vibe that was going on. And unknown to a lot of us, it was being, a lot of these pictures were being taken showing the event and to people in the mainland, China, it was being explained as a celebration of the uh, anniversary of China rather than actual protests in defiance of it. I felt compelled from a lot of the lessons I've learned while I was in Hong Kong to get involved in student government. I actually led a few protests on the campus after a series of hate crimes started happening against black students. Uh, there was protests that actually led to the removal of our chancellor and a few other things that happened during my senior year. So it was quite a <laughs> exciting, uh, high energy, I guess, time that was going on back in the U.S. across all of the universities. So. I remember, <laughs> so I was in student government, and there was right after President's Day, there was two hate crimes that happened within a two-day period. And there were debates going on regarding uh, students who were becoming, who were running for office uh, for the student senate. And so there's a moment where I spoke with all the other black students. I was like, why is this issue not being addressed? So I decided to go and side uh, where the debate was going on for the uh, candidates for the Senate and stole the mic, <laughs> Have had all the black students block all the uh, 
nominees for the Senate. And I just asked them, I was like, you know, we've seen several hate crimes happen in the span of a couple days against black students and none of you said anything except one of you all. Um, I think one of our goals as as student leaders is making sure and ensuring that students feel very, at a basic level, comfortable and safe on their campus. And so rather than talking about getting new IDs or how we're going to introduce Tex-Mex to the cafeteria, I think it's more important that we ensure we have very simple measures to ensure that students are very safe, that they have a protection, especially at night, uh, ensuring that they have a ride home if they live off campus, or just ensuring that the campus is lit and has emergency uh, stations that just in case anything happens. And so that happened. And then a few days later, we launched a huge protest, had tons of media out there. Uh, myself, as well as a few other black student leaders, spoke on on the students' behalf and set outlined a list of demands for the chancellor and administration to improve the security and safety of black students on campus. And so most of the uh, stipulations that we outlined were agreed to, and we began working with the facilities managers to start implementing them and making sure that the school campus was lit up um, and that there were support services and mental health um, opportunities as well. So I think everything that I went uh, through in Hong Kong definitely informed my actions returning to UC Davis. While I was in Hong Kong, I had the pleasure of meeting another student that was also interested in cybersecurity, who's from Estonia. And I actually met him two years later in Beijing. And he just completed some work at NATO, and we're working together to establish our cybersecurity team. And through that cybersecurity team, I became even more interested in it and was able to land an internship in Beijing where I was working for the Carnegie Endowment's Beijing office. And so that led to the job I have now working in Carnegie's uh, DC office doing cyber policy. So I think definitely meeting that one student and deciding to go to Hong Kong uh, created this huge ripple effect where I'm currently working in cyber and US-China relations, all from some of those initial interactions that I had. sitting on the rooftop and on top of one of the restaurants that have tons of skyscrapers there and rooftop bars, just sitting there with a couple of friends late at night looking into the ocean and seeing some of the other islands across and seeing uh, the fireworks going through the air during New Year's and seeing everyone celebrate and just enjoying the company that I was around. So.
2233 is produced by The Collaboratory, an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. My name's Christopher Wurst. I'm the director of The Collaboratory. 2233 is named for Title 22, Chapter 33 of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. This week, Kamal Thomas told us about his time in Hong Kong as a Gilman scholar. For more about Gilman and other ECA programs, check out eca.state.gov. We encourage you to subscribe to 2233 and leave us a nice review while you're at it. And we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at ecacollaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Photos from each week's interviewee and complete episode transcripts can be found at our webpage at eca.state.gov slash 2233. Special thanks to Kamal for sharing his insights and his love of Chinese culture. I did the interview and edited this segment. Featured music was Taxi War Dance by Count Basie and his orchestra, Elmore Heights by Blue Dot Sessions, Golden Horn by Dave Brubeck Quartet, and Parenti Blues by Art Hodes and his all-star Stompers. Music at the top of each episode is Sebastian by How the Night Came, and the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagir Lius. Until next time. <laughs>